Due to the graphic nature of the crimes committed at this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Dinner, drinks, and a show. A nice night in Edinburgh. Kylie slowly makes her way to her friend's flat. A dusting of fog hangs low on the cobblestones. Up the hill and toward the great dark causeway, she marches on, drawn by the music. That mournful, haunting, insistent music calling her up, up, up toward the castle on the rock. The stones disappear before her. A haze of gray obscures her vision. Has it always been there? She tries to recall, but all that she can remember is music. She turns quickly, hoping for the familiar skyline of the city. But there's nothing but blobs of white. There are stone railings on the bridge, but they vanished in the mist. How deep was the moat just below her? Would she fall to her death or just end up mangled, groaning in pain, left to rot like the castle's many victims? Shapes rise in the mist, broken bones and severed heads. She feels the cool kiss of air on her skin as they reach to touch her. Two teenage boys with still eyes and gaping, wailing mouths grasp and pull at her raincoat. She pulls away, slowly, slowly. The mist is still. She backs up into something. The metal under her fingertips gives her a brief second of relief. It's smooth, cold, noisier than a gate should be, but maybe this one is loose. She turns hoping to slip into the castle and away from the fog. But there is no gate in front of her. Her grasp loosens. A man's emaciated body hangs loosely from shackles, as though the cold metal is the only thing holding his limbs to his body. One bony finger reaches out. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Edinburgh Castle, a fortress and prison that is home to one of the largest supernatural investigations in history. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, wherever you're listening. 
built on top of a dormant volcano and overlooking the beautiful and storied capital city of Scotland. Edinburgh Castle has been the residence of Scottish royalty since the 12th century. The castle figured prominently in the Scottish Wars of Independence, changing hands between the English and Scottish for almost 70 years, then became a site of major domestic strife between warring noble families. By the mid-15th century, Edinburgh Castle was the primary armory for all of Scotland. A Scottish garrison is still stationed there today. As one of the most secure locations in the country, the castle has also been both a refuge and a killing field for deposed princes, and a prison for political and religious dissidents, pirates and cutthroats, and enemy combatants in foreign wars. Now, its vaults and towers are preserved for educational purposes, housing the Scottish National War Memorial, the Honours of Scotland, and other exhibitions. The story of Edinburgh Castle is the story of would-be kings, should-be kings, struck down in bloody battles following month and year-long sieges, rulers lost and reclaimed, traps laid and sprung. There have been many deaths in the fortress's long history in the name of ambition and paranoia, but none are as storied as the Black Dinner of 1440. William was the newest Earl of Douglas. He was also the Earl of Wigtown, Lord of Galloway, Lord of Bothwell, Selkirk and Ettrick Forest, Exdale, Lauderdale and Annandale, De Jury Duke of Turenne, Count of Longville, and Lord of Dunlawah. The death of his father, Archibald Douglas, the former regent of the young King James II, meant that he was responsible for the lives and well-being of thousands in Scotland and France. William was also 16 years old. He and his brother David didn't know what to expect when they were first summoned to Edinburgh Castle for a celebratory dinner. It would be their first official meeting with the 10-year-old king and his new regent. The newly finished David's Tower, named for King David II of Scotland, had a height William and David had never seen. The smell of metal was stronger than the feast, as weapons and armor lined the sides of the hall. A large banquet table with the young King James II at the head was the focal point of the room. Sir Alexander Livingston, the king's guardian, stood at his right hand. A massive stone fireplace blazed behind him, wreathing his angular face in flame. William and David took their seats and started to enjoy the revelry. Music and laughter filled the air as they passed plates of meat to each other, more food and drink than they had ever seen in their often-sacked castle in the south. Sir Livingston hinted that the most impressive entree was still to come. They supped and drank and enjoyed the festivities. David could barely keep his eyes open as the party continued late into the night. William saw the entree before he noticed that all the doors in the hall had been shut tight. 
A servant carried in a black bull's head on a gleaming platter. David stuck his hand out to touch its crispy skin, but William stopped him, fingers trembling. Cold dread sat in the pit of his stomach. The bull was not to be eaten. It was an old symbol, a signal that a beheading was about to take place. He grabbed his brother's hand and pulled him out of his seat, but there was nowhere to go. The exits had been blocked, and they were two teenagers. They could not defend themselves against an onslaught. Those waiting eyes. They knew. They all knew. Sir Livingston and his men dragged William and David from the tower, down a long flight of steps and outside. They clawed at their captors, but it was no use. David dug his feet into the ground, trying to stop them from carrying him away. They simply pulled harder. The accused stand before us on charges of high treason, Sir Livingston proclaimed to the dinner guests, now turned bloodthirsty mob. The knot in William's stomach tightened. They were innocent, but no one could hear their pleas over the roar of the crowd. We have evidence here. Sir Livingston held a piece of paper in his hand that the young Earl could not read through his tears. Livingston must have been speaking words, but William couldn't hear them. The buzzing in his ears made them burn. You have been found guilty of high treason against His Royal Majesty King James II. You will be beheaded before the King, whose hospitality you have so flagrantly abused. High treason usually took longer for a ruling, especially for nobles of his stature. But perhaps his stature was the cause. He'd been so focused on his own lands that he hadn't seen the wolves in the field. So many titles. How could they have thought he would want to add King to the crushing pile? Please, William cried, dropping to the ground. David first, please. Don't make him watch as his brother dies. David squeezed the young Earl's hand, looking much older than he was in his final moments. William did not blink as his brother was made to kneel in the shadow of the tower that bore his name. He held his gaze, even through the slice of the blade, watched David's blue eyes go glassy and still. It was his turn next. He kneeled next to his dead brother's body, still holding his hand in his. The sword swung once, and then it was over. The revelers left the corpses in the courtyard, returning to the hall to begin dessert. Edinburgh Castle, town and tower, God grant ye sink for sin, and even for the black dinner, Earl Douglas got therein. Some say if you stand in Crown Square long enough, after the tourists have gone home and the guards have begun their rounds, you can hear the crying of two boys and the sounds of revelry. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to our story. 
Agnes did not murder her neighbor. She'd said the sentence over and over for hours. Her throat was raw from her repeated screams of innocence. She did not murder him. She'd quarreled publicly with Thomas earlier in the week, and now he was dead. Agnes had said his face should be covered in pox the way he troubled her so. She hadn't regretted it then. She did now. Thomas came down with pains in his side the day after their argument in the square. He died within the week. His widow pinned the blame on Agnes. Agnes was sad to hear of his passing, but she was innocent. More and more neighbors testified against her, pointing fingers, blaming her for every misfortune they'd experienced in the last month, the last year. If she was dead, business would be better. The crops would return. The English would leave. The devil, her unholy husband and sinister lord protector, would never trouble them again. But she was innocent. They'd come for her while she slept, broke down her door and grabbed her from her bed, tied her hands and feet together and dragged her through the streets. Mud clung to her clothes. She felt every rock as her body slid across the damp ground. They'd kept her mouth free of restriction, and she had screamed and screamed that she was innocent. No one cared. They threw her in the river, limbs bound, eyes open and pleading. She waited for death to take her. Her body slowly began to sink. She took a huge breath of air before her head went under. The witch hunters waited on the shore, watching with roving, icy eyes. She flailed about, her body contorting under the water, a macabre dance as her lungs burned, pulling for air that would never come. It was no use. Her bonds were too tight, and they'd already dug into her skin. Blood curled from her wrists and face, where her flesh had been rubbed raw. She did not know how long she struggled in the river, only that her body refused to die. Minutes or hours later, they pulled her out of the water. She coughed as she came ashore, liquid spilling from her mouth and nose. Everything burned. Vomit joined water on the rocky sand. It is proven, the witchfinder said, standing haughty and clean above the mud-covered citizens. He wore the king's livery and carried a copy of demonology in his hand. She has used some cantrip to survive the depths. She lives by the will of her master, the devil. She had cheated death once, only to be pushed back into his arms again. They dragged her back through town, pulling harder this time. A trail of blood dripped down the oxhide they put beneath her to keep her battered, but breathing. They weren't done with her yet. Her eyes struggled to stay open. She had lost too much blood to remain coherent. 
A mumble of, I didn't do it, made it past her lips, but it was too soft to be heard. Grass and dirt gave way to cobblestone as they crossed back to the castle. The great archway curled above her, blocking out the sun. Despite her recent brush with death in the river, all she wanted was water. The skies opened up. The pyre was built slowly. Each board laid perfectly against the other. The witch hunters took pride in their work. This was the capital, after all. They tied her to the stake as she struggled against them. Ragged screams choked her lungs. A man took a piece of rope and tied it around her neck. A small mercy, considering what was coming. She looked out over the crowd. No friendly faces, only a bloodthirsty mob. Then she saw her, pale with wide eyes, in a white shift, her dark hair blowing in a non-existent breeze. She looked like she had been on a long journey. She held a kneeling man in her hands, his head down. Agnes knew his form before the dark-haired woman raised his head with a yank of his hair. Thomas, he's alive! He's alive! Agnes's airway closed as the rope went taut. She gasped and gasped for air, but nothing came to her tired lungs. The woman gazed at her from far away, but then, somehow, she was holding Agnes's hand. Agnes found she was crying. And then, the flames engulfed her. As many as 6,000 people were tried and executed for witchcraft in Scotland under the Scottish Witchcraft Act of 1563. Edinburgh Castle was the most common site for executions during the reign of James VI, a monarch so obsessed with the occult that he quite literally wrote the book on it. A three-volume text on necromancy, witchcraft, and demons, including an exhaustive list of the malevolent forces categorized by the ways they chose to plague humanity. In a time of economic upheaval and political precariousness, this demonic taxonomy was a comfort to both the beleaguered king and his subjects. One of the most common accusations was the conjuring of storms. King James and his wife, Anne of Denmark, experienced several bouts of inclement weather during their travels. It seemed every outsider, every political opponent had gotten together to create meteorological mayhem, whether they knew each other or not. After the death of Elizabeth I, James was named as her successor, uniting the kingdoms of England and Scotland. But the cosmopolitan and stridently English city of London wasn't ready to accept a Scottish king. William Shakespeare greeted the new royal with the tale of a Scottish nobleman who reaches beyond his station after meeting three witches on a fog-covered heath. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Glamis. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. All hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. 
But that isn't the only monument to Scotland's fallen witches. If you pause before you cross under Edinburgh's castle's main gate and head right, you'll find a small plaque on the wall of what is now known as the Tartar Weaving Mill. Just below is a small fountain, headed with an intricate bronze relief. An etching of a foxglove plant stands at the center of the plaque. An herb of deadly poison, or medicinal salvation, depending on a witch's aims. Two witches' heads are bowed in sorrow, the crone gazing glassily to the left, and the maiden dreamily to the right. A sinister serpent encloses all, evoking both the rod of Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine, and the form the devil took in the Garden of Eden. Erected in 1912, the plaque reads, This fountain designed by John Duncan RSA is near the site on which many witches were burned at the stake. The wicked head and the serene head signify that some used their exceptional knowledge for evil purposes, while others were misunderstood and wished their kind nothing but good. So when the rain comes down from the sea and all that's green turns gray and black, when the stones are cold and wet in a storm that does not sleep, be careful and watch the mist. For these are witches' storms. They obey neither kings nor nature. They come to quench fires long dead. When the lightning flashes and the winds roar, make sure you're on the right side of the gate. It's dangerous to be out in the rain. Castle Rock, the solid dolomite rock on which Edinburgh Castle sits, has been occupied since the second century AD. The castle itself has endured 26 separate sieges, making it the most often attacked fortress in Great Britain. Surviving a siege demands hardiness, perseverance, and creativity. Luckily, the Scots had plenty. They built an elaborate tunnel system leading out of the castle and into the town, giving them secret routes to supply without arousing the suspicion of the enemy. But each new keeper of the castle would dig their own set of tunnels as they laid claim to the fortress, abandoning the tunnels that had come before them. Which brings us to the apprentice, who found one of the tunnels and decided to map it. Connell's friend was nervous. How will I know where you are? He worried. But Connell had come up with an ingenious plan. He would play his bagpipe as he walked, so his friend would always know where he was. It was a splendid idea and was working marvelously until the sound just... stopped. Connell never came out of the tunnels. When his fellow apprentice finally got the nerve up to tell his master what they'd done, a search was organized through the subterranean labyrinth. But Connell was gone. It was many years later when they started to hear it. The pipes moving in and out of the tunnels, beneath the castle and through the town exploring the dark and damp passages of Edinburgh with a spring in his step and a song in his heart. 
Connell doesn't seem to know that he's dead. The Piper isn't the castle's only musically inclined ghost. A headless drummer boy has been seen and heard on the grounds since the mid-17th century, just before Oliver Cromwell launched his assault on the castle. Perhaps he was hoping to spur his fellow soldiers to action, or to warn them of their impending doom, a traitor in their midst. Three months into Cromwell's siege, the governor of the castle, Colonel Dundas, would surrender, with plenty of supplies to spare. There are reports he joined Cromwell's new model army with a promotion and a very generous stipend. There are still soldiers stationed at Edinburgh Castle today, but some of their predecessors haven't left their posts. A cemetery for the dogs of regimental soldiers has prompted sightings of ghost canines, yapping and playing invisibly on the castle's cobblestones. But some aren't as nice. Starting in the 17th century, the castle was also used as a prison, a place for pirates and rebels to meet their bloody end. Bloodthirsty guards and their dogs patrolled the cells day and night. Dogs with sharp teeth and fast legs. Dogs to keep prisoners in line when they get testy. But there was another dog. One that followed one man all the way from London's Newgate prison. Patrick had been hungry. That's what he told himself. They'd eaten the little German prisoner because he had more weight on his bones. That was it. Nothing personal. They hadn't noticed the drawings in his cell, mapping the heavens and hell, tracking the stars at night and muttering to himself in the dark. Patrick and his fellow prisoners had eaten a witch, and now they were going to pay. Edmund saw it first, the black hell beast with sharp teeth and a cavernous maw. He shouted down the hall for help, but none came, of course there's a dog outside your cell, you oaf. That's Samson. He's been outside your cell for 15 years. Like Patrick, the dog had been hungry. So the dog started eating prisoners. Some died of fright before it came. Those were the lucky ones. But Patrick didn't know that yet. He thought he was lucky and smart. While the dog tore through the flesh and bone down the hall, Patrick and the other surviving cannibals killed a guard and escaped. They ran all the way to Edinburgh, free from even the watchman's reach. He tried not to panic as his friends disappeared one by one. They'd walk into the foggy night and never be seen again, even when he owed them a few shillings. Patrick began to sleep with one eye open. He bought amulets from an old woman on the outside of town. He bragged of his crimes, a great highwayman in the making. He'd used the money to buy more amulets, more protections against a thing he didn't quite believe. In the daytime, he carried on his life without a care in the world. When night fell, somewhere between sleep and waking, he heard the muffled roar 
of a dog. He could smell its foul breath against his face. The next morning, he purchased more amulets. When the people turned him in, he was taken to the castle. In England, thieves could become dashing celebrities if they had the right nerve, cunning, and charm. But he was an Englishman in Edinburgh. The Scots cried out for justice, and Patrick knew that there was only one kind of justice that would await him in another confined space. A space where he couldn't run. The dog would finally have his revenge. In the small dungeon where he could not stand nor lay, he confessed to everything, even to eating the little German sorcerer. Patrick was sitting in his cell, wondering what it would be like to die, when the beast came down the corridor. Black as night, with fiery red eyes and hot, necrotic breath. It sniffed and salivated as it came. Prisoners trembled in fear, muttering prayers to themselves. Patrick knew he had run out of chances. There was nowhere for him to hide. The guards had taken his amulets. He pushed at the bars with his hands as he heard the padding of paws on stone. It was no use. The dog's body passed through the bars as though they were fog. Patrick crouched in a corner and tried not to breathe. Maybe if he stayed still enough, the dog would leave. The dog crept forward slowly, studying Patrick in his cramped spot. In his rush to hide, he had barricaded himself in a place he couldn't get away. The dog was coming closer and he could not move without touching it. Patrick expected the dog to tear out his throat with those long, white teeth, that sinister smile. But it started with Patrick's arm, biting hard into the flesh and exposing bone to the air. He screamed in pain, but he knew that no one was going to save him. He flailed and pushed at the animal, but his hand seemed to pass through the beast as it would through mist. The pain, the breath, the blood was so vivid, yet none of it felt real, except the teeth and the heat and the sound. The same sound he'd heard as he'd pulled flesh from the sorcerer's forearm. Patrick suddenly understood that he'd never actually been hungry in his life not like this, not like the devil inside this dog. A prisoner, Luke Hutton, described it as thus. His countenance ghastly, fearful, grim and pale, his foamy mouth still gaping for his prey. With tiger's teeth he spare none to assail, his lips hell gates, or painted with decay. His tongue the clapper, sounding woeful knell, tolling poor men to ring appeal in hell. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, let's continue our story. It's late, and you're lost. You wandered away from the group earlier, 
drawn by the strange scraping of metal on stone. The walls are weeping condensation. It's dark, and the air is musty. You can feel the cold of the cobblestones through your shoes. The Prisoners of War exhibition is usually crowded, but it's strangely silent now. There's a set of beds stacked against the walls. Clothes hang from ropes on the ceiling, keeping them away from the dank and potentially bloody floor. Names are jaggedly carved into the wood of the bed frames. A sad attempt at immortality for men that were swallowed by history. Once, this vault held 21 pirates, former kings of the Caribbean, later hanged at the high water mark outside Leith. Then, there were French privateers from the Seven Years' War, survivors from Trafalgar. Enemies of the Crown, all. You look left, then right. No one's around. You run your hand along the bed frame, feeling the history. Caught, you turn, ready to offer some apology to a docent. Silly American, can't read the signs. But there's nothing there. You're alone in the prison. You take a deep breath and try to calm yourself. The props are made to remind you that people suffered here, but you are not a prisoner of war. The temperature drops again, and you shiver. A little chill is not unexpected in an ancient castle, but now you can see your breath. Perhaps there's a crack in the walls that you can't see. Castles have those, right? Unsteady, you sit gingerly on the bed and look around the cramped room. You can almost see the prisoners as they got ready to sleep for the night, their wounds dripping blood and pus on the floor. That's enough. You've been very brave, but it's time to get back to the group. You stand up to go, but you know suddenly that you're not alone. You don't look. You can't. Don't want to. With all your might, you force your body forward, grip the doorframe, knuckles white and palms clammy. You know you shouldn't turn around, but you do, praying that you were wrong. Shadowy outlines of the prisoners sit on each bed. You shut your eyes again, close them so hard it hurts. You open them. There's nothing there. Nothing. Empty beds, fully lit room. That whiskey tasting was a bad idea. Something begins to burn. You look down and see a red spot blooming on your forearm, as though someone was pressing down as hard as they can. You reach down to intervene, but there's no hand, just air. You feel a tug at the tail end of your shirt. You can almost see the faint outline of a hand. The lights go out. You have to move, but you're frozen, stuck. Another hand brushes your face gently. You reach up to touch your cheek. There's a lingering coldness left behind. Finally. You compose yourself enough to go. 
breathe. Figure out where you are. You head down the hallway on shaky legs, using your phone's flashlight to guide your steps. The next room provides you a brief moment of relief. It's an empty dungeon. Stone floor, stone walls, stone everything. This is where they must have taken the Catholics, the traitors, the witches. Where confessions were pulled from hoarse, newly toothless smells. Watched by the king they supposedly betrayed. The torchlight in his eyes, the only respite from the crushing darkness. The blue glow of your phone pricks the blackness, damp and deep like the ocean. You step forward carefully, then hear a sound. Drumming? Who would be drumming? At the very edge of the light, you make out the shape of a small boy. At least someone else is lost too. Hey buddy, you say gently. What have you got in your hands? He steps toward you. You were expecting a toy, a doll, maybe even a Nintendo Switch. But it's a drum. Kids are weird, aren't they? Do you know how to get out of here? You look up, looking for a nod or a shake of the head. Even a roll of the eyes will do. But the boy's head is gone. Its sudden absence doesn't seem to frighten or surprise him. He's just drumming. And as much as that frightens you, as much as you wish that it would all just stop, somehow you know, you know, that the last thing you want is for that demonic tat-tat to end. Because when it does, whatever has been watching from the side of the room will stop focusing on the boy and start focusing on you. In 2001, psychologist and noted paranormal debunker, Dr. Richard Wiseman, conducted one of the largest investigations in the history of modern ghost hunting. He picked three of Edinburgh's most haunted spots, including the vaults at Edinburgh Castle, and brought in volunteers who knew nothing about the environments. Over the course of 10 days, they took these ghost-busting lab mice to many different vaults, some of which had extensive reports of activity, while others did not. Overwhelmingly, the volunteers reported more activity in areas that were rumored to be haunted by the guides and citizens of Edinburgh than the control areas. This is the closest any location has ever come to being scientifically confirmed as haunted. Whether they seek ghosts, glory, or memory, each visitor to Edinburgh Castle must pass beneath the same archway. Just above it is a red and gold coat of arms with a motto. Wreathed in gold on top of a Scottish blue scroll, it manages to catch the eye of tourists, even on the bleakest days. Nemo me impuna la cassette. No one harms me without punishment. A fitting motto for a fortress that was a constant target of war and conflict. 
but it also serves as a mocking reminder of those who were harmed without punishment within the confines of these walls. The thousands of women tortured and murdered for the offense of witchcraft. The soldiers rolling in their beds, dreaming of their now-burning homes. The dissidents and Catholics, the revolutionaries and enemies of the crown, whose bodies were flayed in the dark. Numerous would-be rulers of the area. Two young lords whose first state dinner went terribly, terribly wrong. All of their pain goes unanswered, unpunished. Let's say you're safe in the crowd. See a reenactment, pay your respects, but don't stay after dark. Then you're complicit. We're all complicit. Whether by fire, sword, or rain, the victims of Edinburgh Castle will have vengeance in this life and the next. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Ritchie. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>